I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Renee Brown says, vulnerability is not knowing victory or defeat. It's understanding the necessity of both. It's engaging. It's being all in. Hello, welcome to Just Make The Thing, a podcast of people who want to start a thing and keep on making it. My name is Claire Tonti and today I'm joined by author, artist, Peter Drew. Peter has just written a book called Poster Boy about his journey to be a street artist on the streets of Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide and across Australia. His work is political and cultural. It deals with themes of racism and immigration and nationhood and identity. But more interesting to me, Peter's story is about his own search for himself, I guess, for identity, for what really matters in life and an exploration of his childhood and what happened in his family. The book deals with anger and shame and ultimately about how love really can bind it all together. My chat with Peter was so great. He popped into our house, into the Planet Broadcasting Studio um, to talk all about it and I hope you get as much out of this chat as I did. Here he is, Peter Drew. Hello, Peter Drew. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. I wanted to ask you first about street art and particularly what it feels like to put up posters in the middle of the night. Well, it's scary at first. It was just very addictive because, you know, if I'm in the studio painting acrylics on canvas for an exhibition that takes like nine months to put together, uh, with going out on the street, you don't have that wait time at all. You can have an idea that day and go, oh, yeah, I can, or on the spot. It's so immediate. And then the very next day, people come into the city and they're seeing what you did. So that uh, immediate communication with total strangers uh, is pretty exhilarating. Yeah. Have you ever been arrested doing it? Yeah. Yeah, a few times. But it's never, beginning rest is actually pretty boring really? because you get you, it's a lot of just going to the police station waiting around it's just that's half the punishment really it's just uh, how boring it is. <laughs> do you have to have have you ever had a chase down like do cops chase you or do you just kind of go oh yeah i am painting art sorry I, I have run you know that i mean i have run away before but it's yeah no i, I think when you get caught by the police, it's, yeah, there's not much point in running off. It probably makes things worse, so, yeah. I think I had this idea of you in, like, a hoodie with a spray can just, like, running down the streets of Melbourne or something in the middle of the night. The, these days it, it's less at night. I usually do it all during the day and wear sort of a high-vis vest and just sort of try to blend in as much as possible. I get much more done that way. But there was a good few years there when I just did it all late at night and it was as sneaky as possible. What does it give you to do that, to put street art out there well i think a certain temperament of people are attracted to it i think i wanted to be sort of on the outside of things i mean i was painting and showing stuff in a gallery and 
for some reason that was that was always kind of suspect to me that art world and even the art world is on the outside of things in a lot of ways and I don't trust uh, institutions or committees and that sort of stuff and so just being that freedom of being on the street and uh, you're sort of against the cityscape in a way like you're in competition with these buildings and it's it's just a very sort of addictive form of expression because you know if you're out in the city it's an intimidating place even during the day all these people that are busy these enormous expensive buildings but if you're out late at night sticking up posters or doing graffiti it's just a very so it feels like a very natural, liberating thing because public space, it should be a space where you can communicate freely. But the only people that can really do that, the only entities that can really do that are big sort of advertisers. Um, but suddenly if you just change the rules and say, well, I've got a, a spray can or these posters, now I can express myself in this space. It's sort of that sort of flip of the way you see public space. It's just a, it's a terrific thing. It's sort of, you know, I mean, I, I, I've got to be careful with talking about it because obviously, you know, I'm not for just total vandalism, but I just think there's a there's room for using art in a in a good way in that sense. Do you have street art artists that inspire your work or that you admire? Yeah, absolutely. But it, it's more it's more the whole phenomenon, like the whole community i mean there's even the stuff i really don't like i still kind of like Like, i like the fact that it exists like really sort of ugly destructive graffiti is kind of i'm still happy that it's there in some ways uh because it's and councils and 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 sort of companies will try to do that do this they go oh look at graffiti that's cool and vibrant if we just remove the criminal aspect and just have the vibrancy and the fun like let's do that and it doesn't it doesn't work it you've got to have I mean, because what attracts people to it, what attracts young people to it is this sense of I get to say what I want and expression is more important than property. I mean, that's, you know, that's a dangerous line to cross, mm-hmm. but that's essentially what graffiti does. It says expression is more important than property. And there's some truth to that, but it's not it's not absolutely true. You know, I'm not going to go out there and start graffitiing the front of people's ha- homes. But. <laughs> so you haven't put graffiti on the front of our house yet? Not, not yet, no. <laughs> so what kind of kid were you then? Oh, um, what sort of kid was I? I? I was adventurous. Like I liked, I was obsessed with rock climbing. Like before I was able to do it, I liked climbing things and just sort of, and that comes into doing graffiti as well as just climbing all over stuff. But what sort of kid was I? I mean, pretty solitary in some ways. Like I, I wasn't super popular. I always had a, a small group of good friends and I liked finding excuses to have adventures and, and going sort of out of bounds a lot. There was a lot of breaking the rules when I could, if it didn't sort of actually hurt anyone. Because, you know, I think as a kid, you sort of start to quickly figure out, hang on a second, the word of adults isn't all to be taken seriously. They, you know, sometimes adults make up stupid rules and it's fun to break them and, and, and get away with that. And that's my favorite memories from childhood are all schemes of that sort of like, oh, look, we can go out of bounds and then we'll tell our friends about how we went out of bounds and that now we've got a club which is about going out of bounds. So, <laughs> Yeah, wasn't it a gang? Did you, yeah, didn't so, you have a gang? What was that called? So there was a, it's in the book, there's a gang called the Kamikaze Run Squad. I and love that name because I used to teach five sixes. I could just see, yeah. Totally cool name. Yeah, Definitely. like the word kamikaze sounds great. And and so the idea of the gang was to run out of bounds at school 
and just shout as loud as we could with, with our arms stretched out like we were a, a plane. Yeah, it was it's sort of an addictive, fun thing to do because you're getting away with something and it's sort of bold-faced in, in the face of the rules. And we made a little map of where we sort of run out of bounds and we're recruiting people. But it sort of it turned into a – it became a problem because other people started doing it um, who weren't in our club and it, the whole thing sort of got out of hand. Yeah. Oh, and then it just became anarchy in the school for a bit. Well, or? there there was this there was an assembly in which the he, I think it was the deputy principal sort of said, "Look, this running and shouting and screaming around has to stop." And so we we sort of said, "Okay, we have to have to call it." But my dad found he found out about it. He like found the little map um, that I made and sort of and told me off. But the reason he told me off was not really like he was upset that we were running out of bounds. But it was like. The reason it's in the book is because it's the the word kamikaze. I, as a kid, I didn't really know what that meant. I sort of, I thought, oh, it sounded cool. And I sort of had some inkling of what it was about. But my dad was a, he used to dive on, on shipwrecks in the Solomon Islands and uh, Japanese planes and and Japanese ships and, and like for all the stuff from the Second World War. That's how I learned about who the kamikaze were. And so it was. it's in the book because I remember learning there was some other boundary that I'd crossed, like the conceptual boundary of this word kamikaze didn't, didn't belong to me. Like it was, mm. And it, it was something I didn't understand that these pilots actually sacrificed themselves uh, in order to attack the enemy. And that was sort of something which I was too young to be playing with. Yeah. And I thought that was that's got an interesting parallel to what I do now because I find photographs from the archive and use them on poster projects. Mm, yeah, like Monga Khan. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, which I, I think is such an iconic image. I'll ask you about that more in a moment. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your dad first because he plays – quite a role in the book in Poster Boy. How's your relationship with him now? Good. It's, no, it's really good. And he didn't like everything about the book. Like it was uncomfortable for him to read and I, I knew it would be. But even that conversation that we had was one of the best conversations that we had. And I, I mean, mm. in the book I talk about a lot of personal things, especially about family, because I think it's a good parallel for the way we think and talk about nationhood. But I I think that those relationships, family and and sort of in national identity can get uh, just sort of blocked and especially when shame comes into the mix. Mm. And silence, I think that comes yeah. so through so strongly that you're you grew up in a kind of culture of don't say how you feel, don't really talk. In yeah, or, way. or or but you talk about some things, like you talk about some things a lot, but other things just do not get spoken yeah. about. Like politics and big issues. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a house like that where we debated and discussed and got angry, but we only got angry about political issues and things that weren't mm -hmm. so close to home. And that it, becomes yeah. like the currency with which you sort of try to say how you're feeling and, yeah. and you're not even really conscious of you're, you're sort of using it as a like a conduit for things that are much closer to home. Mm, and much more underlying and... Yeah, and I, and I think Brene Brown, who I love, she does a TED Talk on shame. She's brilliant. And she has actually a Netflix special out now. But she says that shame can't exist once you say its name and you talk specifically about what you feel shameful about. Suddenly that starts to fall away. It's mm -hmm. when we keep it hidden and secret that it kind of festers and, and makes things really difficult. 
Um, Absolutely. How do you think shame played a role in your family? Well, it's it's difficult to say because it's still sort of uncomfortable, I guess. But I think that, I mean, a part of the book is about me discovering uh, when I was sort of in my early 20s that my parents had uh, sort of marital problems when I was very young, like before I could remember. And it kind of, they tried their very best to resolve it, but they didn't sort of forgive each other enough or or in a way which they they basically decided we're never going to talk about this. Because mm, so, your dad had an affair. My dad had yeah. an affair, yeah. Well, my yeah. my mum my, uh, did also, but it, it was the fact that my dad tried to leave especially. I mean, that's obviously different to just having an affair. But they decided to never talk about it and that w- in their minds was – was dealing with it. <laughs> I think that was how that generation deal with stuff is you don't talk about it. You yeah. just move on. It'll be right. Well, we're sort of encouraged these days to to sort of share and maybe even overshare. So there's this, this, <laughs> yeah, that's this, this conflict between the generations. But um, so, yeah, they, they just sort of put it aside and thought that would be best. And I can understand that. And I sort of – I even appreciate that. I mean, it's it's better than – it's better than other ways of dealing with it for sure. But it sort of meant that because that wasn't exchanged, those emotions weren't exchanged, it sort of blocked everything else up. And I really try, and I think that that's sort of, that was the underlying dynamic of my family. And I thought, well, that's interesting because that reminds me of the way we think and talk about Australian identity. Like there Mm. are these big, two bigger um, problems that we sort of, we aren't prepared to face, and so we we sort of uh, avoid them. Yeah. What What do you mean? What do you think to you are the those big issues in Australia? Well, I think all nations have have secrets or crimes or things that that um, contradict the values that we uphold, like the way Australia was established as a colony, and the and also the White Australia policy is another example of that. Um, they're sort of traumatic events that are too difficult to face or too difficult to reconcile with who we the, the story we tell ourselves about who we are mm. and it's it's kind of a and how I mean how do you face things that are that big it becomes you sort of have to rely on big old ideas that are sort of that border on spirituality really when you start talking about redemption and atonement and forgiveness and, and forgiveness I mean these reconciliation. Are, Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the they're they're sort of they're ideas that I don't know, in order for them to work you need to sort of practice them as a culture. They need to be embedded in ceremony and um and in culture in general. And so it's not as simple as a prime minister standing up in parliament and saying, I'm sorry. Like that's that I mean, great as that is, it's sort of it needs to be in sort of embedded in who we are and that's that's the role of artists to to try to imagine ways of us doing that because there's no playbook for for a nation to heal itself so um we all have to actually apply our imaginations to how we can do it yeah and i i do really think your work embodies that i I know that idea of creating folklore which is what you did with monga khan i guess for people who don't know the white australia policy in a nutshell i guess was a, a policy to try and keep Australia white basically and and keep out immigrants from other nationalities really that weren't, I guess, Anglo-Saxon or European. 
Would that be a fair kind of summary? Absolutely. Uh, The strange thing about it is the way it functioned was with uh, a dictation test. So I found uh, Monga Khan's image in the National Archive because he had his photograph taken for an exemption to the dictation test. So Monga Khan and thousands of people like him were living in Australia and if they wanted to travel outside of Australia – they needed an exemption to the white Australia policy in order to get back into Australia. So Monga Khan wanted to go uh, back to India and visit his family. So he applied for an exemption. And for that exemption, he had a photograph taken. And because uh, ID photos at the time were taken by portrait photographers, all these images in the archive are just beautiful photographs. And that became the, the basis to my poster project. But uh, I think what's interesting about the well, – one of the things that's interesting about the white Australia policy and the dictation test, they didn't just sort of go, oh, yeah, you're, you're not white. Um, we've got like a, a colour card here. Your, your skin's got too much pigment in it. It was – there was still this element of uh, shame in what they were doing because they didn't do it that way. They did it via a dictation test, via language. So they said, oh, you can't um, complete this, this language test – we're going to um, exclude you from the country. But if they just said they did happen to pass the test, there are documents, there's tons of examples in the archive of the people uh, who apply the test saying, oh, he passed it in English, so we gave it to him again in another language. Oh, my goodness. So so they even they were ashamed of what they were doing, and so they created this this little uh, bureaucratic mechanism whereby they could hide behind it and, and have this plausible deniability yeah. to their racism. So Rather I just, than just saying it straight out, we exactly. don't want you here. Exactly. I just, and yeah. I find that, that fascinating. Yeah. I wonder if that's a part of British culture, like colonisation in a way almost. Well, I mean, colonisation, I, mean, I mean, it's power really. It's, it's sort of just the – I mean, when you really start thinking about these things, you have to ask, you have to wonder what is power and how, how old is it really. It's – yeah. It, it's old time, really. Exactly. It's been around much longer than we have and it sort of made who we are in some ways. And that's and confronting that and that, that worship of power is in all of us in some ways and it needs to be tampered um, or at least controlled in a way which, is, uh, which makes it less destructive. And that's kind of what culture and religion uh, tries to do and it's been figuring out ways of doing for a very long time. And so when we remove one way of of controlling that. Uh, I mean, getting a bit abstract now, but I mean, a lot of the problems of the 20th century come down to removing the old ways of us controlling our thirst for power and then it's sort of spilling out. And I think that that happens especially in the 20th century. Mm, Yeah, gosh, that's getting very abstract. Sorry. (laughs) No, but it's true. I I mean, I think we're living in such an interesting time, right? I mean, when you started creating – what? Just to put it in context, what year was Monga Khan's photo taken? So his photo was taken in, in 1916. So when I started sticking them up in all over Australia, uh, it was exactly 100 years since the photograph was taken. Wow, so to 2016. Was that the year Trump was inaugurated or was that 
2016 or 2017? How many years have we been I going know. through it? It feels like a long time, doesn't it? It I, does. I think it was, I think it might have been at the end of that year. Yeah, yeah, such an interesting time culturally. So you stuck up the poster of Monga Khan with his turban and underneath it said Aussie yep. in big letters and put that all over Australia. And then you use that same technique, right? Or other posters as well with Aussie written down. What did you want people to to do when they saw that poster or feel? Well, I think it obviously it conflicts with what that image that we all have in our head of what a typical Aussie looks like. Mogha Khan has a big moustache, big turban. He looks like a, a Muslim man and and it looks like an old image. You know that it wasn't taken it looks like it was taken a hundred years ago. Yeah, it does. And so it sort of tells the lie to that idea that multiculturalism is just this new thing. Um, it's, I mean, the way we talk about it and think about it is is new, but but really we're sort of we're a mix from the very beginning. And people like Monga Khan have been here for a long time, and so he belonged. He um, no, ultimately, like, I can make it much simpler. Like I think that. What I want people to get from that image is that they want to identify with Monga Khan. They'd like him. They want to. They'd rather. Um, they'd rather imagine themselves sort of getting along with him rather than the people who wrote the White Australia policy. I think he is more Aussie than them, and I think that's why people uh, like the image. Is that they, you know, they you look at him and go, he looks like a, a proud guy. I wonder what he was like. I, 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 I you know, I want to be his friend. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's what I get from the image. That's exactly how I felt as soon as I saw it. Sort of leaps out at you, doesn't it? Yeah. He's just so beautifully, it sounds so manicured even. Like his moustache is so beautifully put together. You think, yeah. great, 100 years ago. That's the amazing thing about so many of those photos is that there's this interesting sort of mixture of, of shame and pride because they, they knew why they are having their photo taken, but in those days that might have been one of the only photographs they ever had taken. So, you know, uh, everyone got dressed up for it. Yeah, and you had to stand very still. Their facial expression is so still. It's almost like a painting. Well, yeah, because yeah. it's the, the people taking the photographs were portrait photographers and that follows a tradition of like classical portraiture. So it's the... They they had their photos taken front on the camera, but also side on, and it's the same. That's like a, the way a kings and queens had their photos taken, photos taken too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was listening to Benjamin Law talk about the Chinese history in Australia too, which is I think something that they've been here like you know two hundred years since colonization as well, working in the goldfields and all kinds of things. So Chinese history is another part of our story in Australia that sometimes gets swept under the carpet too. What are some other examples of, of images that you used on that Aussie poster? Well, there was a couple I used from the Sim Chun family in, uh, in South Australia and I th- they, they were a great find in the archive because people in South Australia have already heard of Gladys Sim Chun. She was born in Unley in South Australia of... Uh, Chinese parents and I and I and I found sort of the family's uh, folder in the archive because they travelled back to China a bunch of times, and so you see the kids growing up in the photographs. They're there as little kids and then as teenagers, then as adults because they keep going back to China to buy goods to sell in their emporium. And 
And I thought that was that was terrific because most Australians have heard of Gladys Simtune, sorry, most South Australians, but her sister uh, no one recognised. So I thought, oh, I'll use her sister's image, Dorothy, just for to, rather than using the image of Gladys, which people would recognise. And that was that was terrific, I think, just sort of, I don't know, because taking someone who's already famous and, and sort of it, it, I wanted to sort of find someone who was less so. Yeah, and, and almost tell their story. Yeah, well, I mean, what I do is not so much it, – it works on history, but I'm not a historian. I think that that's probably a distinction worth making. I I mean, I find out as much as I can about it, but, but ultimately I'm not sticking up the person's whole story and I'm, I'm actually encouraging people on the street to imagine for themselves because that, that has a – that has a different function to just telling the facts. And that's especially true with the Monga Khan image because we, we pu- published a small book uh, of fictional short stories and poems about Monga Khan. And it's important that it was fictional because I, I think empathy requires your imagination in some ways. And if you're just telling the facts and just saying this is the factual history, it doesn't that doesn't sort of open up the field to someone being a folk hero or someone being a figure that you really empathize with. So, um, yeah, while I'm interested in, in the actual facts of what happened, I think that trying to create a folk hero is, is a different task. Yeah, trying to create him as a myth. There's podcast dog. <laughs> she likes to make herself known. Yeah, creating a character of folklore like a Ned Kelly who is a bushranger exactly. for us and there's so much imagery around him. And you're right, there's, a, there's something really powerful about that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Empathy is a really big theme, I think, in your work as far as I can see. That message Australians or real Australians say welcome. How did you come to that particular message? A twist on some of the xenophobic slogans you get, like uh, fuck off or fool is a pretty classic one. And I just thought... Which is fun to say, actually. It is. I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. what I, I talk about in the book is that like propaganda, like good propaganda is sort of fun and... Punchy? And punchy, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it, yeah, fuck off, we're full. It's sort of... It's uh, it's a little weapon that you once you learn it you can use. And so I thought I want to give the other side a weapon like that and show the the xenophobes how it feels to be excluded. And so that's how I came up with real Australians say welcome. But it was it was inspired by the Australian national anthem because there's a, a part in the second verse which you never never hear because you never get that far in the in the anthem and it says. For those who come across the seas with boundless planes to share, with courage, let us all combine to advance Australia fair. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, Wouldn't and, that be a nice dream? <laughs> well, exactly. It's, it, it's, it's kind of, I think all um, national art or a, a national anthem is an artwork. It's always aspirational. So, um, so yeah, that's how I came up with that, that slogan. Yeah. What was people's reaction to it? Um, the project... 
um, kind of exploded, and I really sort of was hoping that it would. Um, but one of the best things about the way people got into it was that they took the slogan and uh, and redesigned it because my poster is very sort of plain and forceful, and artists and designers based on a um, a sort of a the design files, the design files yeah, thing. which is yeah. one of my favorite website. Yeah, is a huge design blog. Design files. If you're a creative, it's just like a wonderful place for um, artists to share their work. Their writing there is great, and yeah, so it, it's really it features creatives from all over Australia. Really, I'd never heard of it, and <laughs> I mean, and my yeah. my wife Julie sort of got in contact when the design files um, launched this thing. Because the design file said, look, Peter Drew is sticking up a thousand of these real Australians say welcome posters around the country. We will reshare uh, anyone who redesigns the slogan. Oh my gosh. And wow. yeah, which is which is great. But I hadn't heard of the design file. <laughs> so Julie calls me up and says, you better, you might want to check your, your Instagram. And I was busy sticking up posters. And so I was like, oh, go on, just leave me alone. And um, but sure enough, things were were blowing up because everyone wanted to get on the design files, and um, yeah, there were just dozens of these uh, artists and, and illustrators redesigning the slogan, and it just sort of um, took over the internet for a little while. That was great. Yeah, it's beautiful. I liked what you said about how you didn't want your original design to be beautiful. No, no, you just wanted it to be strong and say, "Why was that? Why didn't you want to?" Because none of your artwork, I mean, the photos are beautiful, but the other one, you sort of just put the slogan there. You know, it's not kind of beautiful. Like Julie, your wife, is a printmaker and does this incredibly beautiful, colourful, vibrant prints, and that's not your work. Why no. Why not beautiful? Why not I think do that kind of thing? A couple of reasons. I mean, for that one, it was because you, I made Real Australian say welcome as forceful as possible. It sort of it gave other people room to make it beautiful. Um, but also I think that, I don't know, there's just something in design that there'd be some theory around this that I don't have at my fingertips, but by, by making something as plain as possible, it sort of, it gives seriousness, seriousness to it in some way. Um, I don't know. I mean, with every design I come up with, I try to make it softer by just making it plain. It sort of, it allows people to, I don't know. To just read the words, maybe? Just the words, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess political slogans and, and are really very simple and straightforward, aren't they? They don't have embellishments all over them. That's it. Is Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that gives people room to, you know, they embellish it then when they're thinking about the meaning of it. Whereas if you're trying to sell it by making it beautiful, it it sort of um, it maybe gets in the way of that or it's see you sort of see what the artist or designer is trying to do. You go, oh, you're trying to you're trying to trick me by making it more beautiful. I sort of, um, yeah, by being as plain as possible, it sort of, it seems less suspect in some ways. Yeah. Well, I guess it's like making logos and things too, right? Often they just need to say exactly what you want them to mm. read because you're walking past them too or, and I would assume that's like with street art, you're walking past it, people might only see your poster for a fraction, a couple of seconds and keep walking. So you want it to jump out at you. Absolutely. And the message is more important. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You want it to shout and with especially with real Australians say welcome, I wanted it I wanted it to shout as loud as possible because it was a parody of that that certainty. You know that I know exactly what a real Australian is and they say welcome and it's sort of it's a, it's a silly way to think and I th- and I, I think that sort of 
the irony of that, it came across most of the time. I think some people perhaps didn't take it that way, but I, I certainly did. Yeah. You've occasionally had people come up on the street and yell at you, right? Because your posters are provocative and make them think. Is it ever women? Yeah, but, I mean, very rarely. I mean, it's men are just more confrontational, I think. And I'm quite tall, so I think yeah. that, sort of, that sort of thins out the crowd of who, who bothers to come up to me. But um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's one woman in, in the book who, who comes up to me in, and that was in Sydney. And it was, it was, that was quite a funny interaction. I try, I mean, I've had tons of people come up to me um, and I'm trying to describe in the book a bit of a spread because there are all kinds of political pathologies and they're not just the angry old white guy. Yeah, which is my immediate reaction. I just think, F off, mate, that's not, that doesn't belong here. You know, that yeah. kind of old white guy that's angry. I'm sure you've counted Oh, yeah, them. yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like he's in the book a couple of times as well in, you know, it's various the, guys. Various guys, yeah. But um, no, this lady in in Sydney, she, I, I was on my way home, and she thought, and I was fixing up a poster because I could see that I hadn't stuck it up properly enough, and she thought that I was because I was in a high vis vest, yeah. And it was a very well to do part of Sydney, right? Too. Yeah, very posh. Not a lot of graffiti anywhere or anything like that. Exactly. And I, so I get get up on this. Bin, I think it was, and I, I'm fixing it up. And she thought, and she starts filming me on her phone and saying, "No, you don't. You're not going to take that down." That sort of thing. She thought that I was going to take it down because I looked like a, I was a, a worker, like on the street. And and rather than say to her politely, "Listen, this is my poster. I'm just fixing it up." I just thought, "You asshole! Like just because I look like this, you're assuming that I am just getting rid of this poster, like and, an uneducated." person a council worker or someone following the rules or is that what you mean yeah or 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 just sort of no it was the way that she spoke to me is that by her defending it she was signaling her virtue over me in some way and I just thought that I mean that section of the book is about class really because she was using her poster to assert her moral superiority uh also according to her class because I looked like somebody who was working on the street and wouldn't understand how much, you know, she said to me, this, this neighborhood's white enough. Thank you very much. Like, you know, <laughs> even though I'm assuming she was white oh, very, as very, well. Yeah. With not, the, well, faux African beads or something. Exactly. Yeah. Just yeah. very. And I just thought this, I can't sort of stop this. I can't stop people from using my posters to, to sort of um, signal their virtue uh, according to their class. And, that sort of that irritated me, and I thought that was that was worth something worth putting in the book because it, the book's really about me sort of realizing in so many ways how uh, these things are much simpler. Uh, sorry, they're much more complicated than my posters can possibly convey, and just the frustration of of uh, of realizing that. And so that I thought that was a good example. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I guess we're living in a time where the left and the right like to yell at each other. And I think both sides are just as bad in the way that they can treat, particularly extremes, yeah. the way they treat people and each other and the pylons online and all of the – and obviously issues of immigration and refugees and um, nationhood and particularly in Australia with such a um, short history since colonisation, a long history of Indigenous um, culture in our country, how we navigate all of that – is really complicated and yeah, and, it's impossibly yeah. complicated, and that doesn't mean don't try. What it 
does mean or what I think works is not having a sense of absolute certainty in the righteousness of your cause or belief system. Exactly, because, you know, be a little more humble than going out into the world thinking that you've got it figured out because it's it's always going to be more complicated than even the smartest person in the room and their understanding of it. So and and this the peace that we find on any issue is always a compromise. It's always a compromise. And so if you go into a negotiation uh, believing that, then you're going to have a much better chance of of finding peace. And um and I think that's something I sort of had to learn because especially when you're young, you want to find the key that's going to make you invulnerable to the world. And whether that's an ideology or sort of an attachment to your ethnicity or it, there, you know, that, that desire uh, finds so many different forms of political patho- pathology. And so yeah. I was a bit like that. And I think there's a bit of that in my posters as well. Like uh, a, not that they say this, but like a moral superiority, like I've got it figured out, I know that, or something like that. Well, at least yeah. it, I think they, they show like a desire for certainty, especially real Australians say welcome. I mean, I, I see that it's ironic, but I think there was a part of me at the time that wanted to know that certainly, like that I was right and that I was going to uh, tell others the way it should be. Yeah. It strikes me too, it comes with a certain privilege, right? The ability to be open-minded and welcoming and, you know, everyone should be treated equally, all of those things, which I believe, but it does come with privilege because when you've grown up with wealth and a family that supports you and, you know, a good education and and even the fact that we have Australian passports and live in this country opens opportunities to us that the majority of the world, frankly, don't experience Mm -hmm. so of course we can afford to be everyone's welcome everyone come in because we've got so much Mm -hmm. and privilege is 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 a tricky thing isn't it do you find that absolutely i think you can sort of put that into concrete terms when it comes to the immigration debate because i think that if you are in at the lower end of the labor market and um, you can see your job getting taken away quite easily then that you have perfectly legitimate reasons for uh, being fearful about immigration, which aren't, which have nothing to do with xenophobia. And then to have someone whose job isn't threatened because they have a much higher income sticking their nose up at you and saying, well, you should just be a little more welcoming that just essentially being called a racist because you want to protect your job. Yeah. That's completely infuriating. And, um, and in terms of like rhetoric, it's, you know, irresponsible and, and not helpful. And so I think that, yeah, the way that we talk about immigration is um, it's it gets once something like racism comes into it, that becomes the, the way of winning that debate every time. It, it means the, uh, the the debate falls apart. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of have come to a realisation that I think the way forward is just to listen. The well, yeah, more you can help. listen. yeah. I mean, and I'm not certain about that either. (laughs) You know, there is no absolutes, but listening to people from different perspectives. I was really fascinated in the the campaign that you did that wasn't quite so successful with Indigenous Australians uh, and their culture. Could you talk a little bit about your experience with those posters that you started making and then what happened? Yeah, I because I did the the slogan, Real Australians Say Welcome, I thought, 
that's there's something pl- problematic about that as well because who has the right to say welcome? Um, and it goes back to that line in the anthem, uh, for those who come across the seas with boundless plains to share. Really? Like, when, yeah. And how did, how did we acquire those boundless plains? They were just taken because the colonisers were more powerful than the people who had been here for 60,000 years. And so I thought that's that. So when it gets down to it, Australian identity is this paradox of wanting to be welcoming but we ourselves were never welcomed. And so the the slogan I came up with was the inverse of the original one, which is real Australians seek welcome. And uh, I had a design which incorporated these, uh, the phrase Aboriginal land and an arrow pointing to the ground. So the poster would show that this, where the poster is placed, is Aboriginal land. And I thought... That's not really enough because what's one of the most interesting things about Aboriginal culture is that it's diverse. You know, it's, it, there is not one Aboriginal culture. There were, what is it, 250 different language groups yeah. when when the British arrived. And so, and that's an example of multiculturalism, isn't it? And I thought that was an interesting parallel, the multiculturalism of then and the multiculturalism of now. And so I was trying to squeeze all of that into a poster project and the idea was to make 250 different poster designs for the different language groups. I sort of set about doing this. I had this horrible feeling of anxiety the whole time I was sort of committing to this project because in the back of my head there was this voice saying, you're not going to pull this off. It's not possible and it's too politically fraught. Um, but I pushed ahead and and sort of found that it was too difficult. Um that yeah, there were various various feedback that I got that sort of let me know that it was something not that what I was saying was wrong, but a lot of it was that if someone else was saying it, someone who was Aboriginal, that would have been it's it's more something for them to say. Yeah, um, yeah, because the names of their language groups are not yours to share in a way. Or in a way, well, it's but at the same time, it's I spoke to people that said yes, do it who are Aboriginal, and I spoke to people who were Aboriginal that said stop doing it. And so it's 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 like any political field. There's There are people who agree and disagree. Um, and and there is, there's a huge pushes now to, to get people to uh, use Aboriginal place names because um, it's really an acknowledgement of country. And that's something that anybody Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal can do when at the beginning of an event or – on their Twitter handle, um, that's um, not Twitter handle, but you know, like the, in the bio, the bio section. exactly. Yeah, uh, we we acknowledge country, and that's ultimately what the posters were doing. Um, but still, it's it's this it's this sort of field of culture which is still being negotiated. And I think ultimately, there's a difference between a national poster project and your Twitter bio. With Twitter bio is much sort of. Uh, much smaller, but a huge project in which I'm going out sticking up thousands of posters um, is was it just it was too big. Yeah, and, so, and, yeah. and I, I mean it's such a short history. 
since colonization, since all of the events that happened. I, I don't know if you've read a book called Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. I, I'm halfway through at the moment. Oh, so yeah. yeah, it's really fascinating, it's yeah. right? Really interesting. And there's also, I think it's called The Greatest Estate, and that book is recommended in Dark Emu. I'm not written by Bruce Pascoe, but it's also about Australia and how when the, the British arrived, all the reports suggest that Australia was like a big estate, a gentleman's estate in Britain, and it wasn't by accident. It was by agriculture and um, a culture of people who knew how to care for the land and grow food and all those sorts of things. But I really feel like the history that we know and are taught is so narrow and there's just so much more for us to unpack and learn and sort of uncover about our nation's history, Indigenous history and of course, after all of the events that happened and massacres and all kinds of things, yeah, it's not, sort of not our story to tell in lots of ways. It's But it's just complex. I don't know what I'm, what I'm trying to yeah. say. There's layers of shame and resentment and anger and, yeah, things to really – I mean, a lot of it was whitewashed, right, history, I feel. Absolutely. And, and that's – it's not so much that it's not it, – in a way, it is our history to tell. It's our responsibility to, to tell that history. But it's sort of – it's so – but it's not any one person's – you know, it's yes. history to tell. It has to be sort of a collaboration. And it, Yeah, it, you're right. It has been whitewashed because it's too difficult to face. I, I don't think it's – I don't think it's an Australian problem. It's it's a human problem of of what it means to worship power in a way. I mean, because there's an element of that in, in every nation's history and in every person's history at points at which they went, I'm doing this because I want it and I don't care whether it's wrong or right. Yeah. Um, and so to confront that in, you know, that exists deep down the side of us, it's a hard thing and try to reconcile that with this image that we have, especially in Australia, of being um, of being happy simpletons. Yeah, kind of like larrikins and we're all for the underdog, you exactly. know, and we kind of don't like tall poppy, you know, that tall poppy syndrome. So we like to kind of be scrappy and yeah. all of that kind of thing and up and coming and you were young and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Yeah, it's a funny juxtaposition. It doesn't. And then you think that kind of must come from the fact that a lot of our ancestry my ancestors were convicts, you know. Absolutely. Were, you know, she was a prostitute that came at 14 from Britain and stole a watch or something. Oh, really? You know? I was about to say, yeah. was that really your... Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. definitely. Um, and she met um, a cattle rustler on the ship. <laughs> So and they just, cool. hu- yeah, right. And they hustled their way in. On the- that was the first fleet. They hustled they were- their way in. They must have been really charming or something because they fell in love and then kind of hustled to get themselves a bit of land when they finally were just done their sentence and then kind of went from there and had lots of kids and then ended up owning property. And I think she had an affair with a wealthy man and took off with him. And, you know, like there's just lots of. It's a great story. Yeah, so interesting. Like so many people in our, you know, country have history like that. And so you can see why that narrative of the underdog and the larrikin and the simpleton kind of comes because a lot of the people, you know, our ancestry is from convicts who were mm. also living in poverty and had no choice but kind of were forced to come here. So no, and I, anti-authoritarian, you know, all that stuff. I love all of that and I and I think that we should keep that and, and add to it because I think that the, the reason why there's pushback against this feeling of shame that we're dealing with when we talk about these big, deep, dark secrets is that people think that, well, I don't want to lose the, the sense of pride I have in who I am 
And I think that's not necessary. You, what we have waiting in front of us is a national identity which is bigger and broader, more complex and interesting, which we can, um, which we have if we just sort of apply ourselves to the truth. And I think that that story you just told me is is incredible, and there's no part of that which gets erased by opening up to the rest of Australia's history, like especially the. Uh, what we're talking about with colonisation. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because it strikes me that you're talking about Australia but you're also talking about your own story, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because once you hit on the truth of something, the fear is once people find out the truth, once they know my deep, deep dark shame, I, everyone will, you know, everything will be ruined, my life will be ruined. And often the inverse, actually always really, the inverse is true that if you can work through all of that pain you end up shining a light, you you grow more as a person, you learn more about others, everyone starts to tell you their shame and their things that are terrible that they've done and once you can do that, you can move forward and, mm. and kind of incredible things can happen. Well, that's that's the hope. I mean, that, I mean that's what I started off hinting at, things like uh, redemption and, you know, you said reconciliation. These are old spiritual concepts and the idea is that they are infinite you know that they there is no limit to how to what can be forgiven in a way um and you've sort of got to believe that because there's certainly no limit to how bad people can be and um and so i mean to to bring it back home that's what I hoped would happen with writing this book and, and my family is that they didn't really, my parents didn't do anything that bad, you know, and but still yeah. they were holding on to this secret. And I wanted to let them know that, look, I know about it and you don't need to keep it a secret. In fact, I wish you didn't. And I understood that they were uncomfortable about the book being out there, but the sky didn't fall in, you know, no. and, and other people and what other people think about us as a family doesn't matter. We, if we all love each other, then the outside world sort of doesn't matter at all. And so that's, that was my hope. And, I, and, and things between us are, are good. And I'm, and I'm very glad that I didn't sort of just keep holding on to things for no reason. Yeah, or for or I think sometimes everything can be boiled down to love or fear, right? Yeah, broadly. I mean, yeah, I, I think it does help to simplify. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do with my posters is simplify things to make them digestible in some ways. Um, and love and fear, yeah, a dichotomy, love and fear, love and hate, good and evil, are these things sort of make it uh, understandable. And, you know, then you look at it closer and it sort of, there's infinite complexity within that. but um, yeah. And that's life, right? That's life, it? yeah. Yeah. There's a beautiful quote in your book and you talk beautifully about Julie's family and what she's taught you. She's Italian, is that right? Yeah, her yeah. mum's Italian, yeah. Yeah, and she's sort of got this big, vibrant family that's loud and full of love and noise and food and all of that stuff. And I, I could totally relate to that. I, I grew up in a family that was very much the butter and what do you think about the political landscape at this current moment you know and I just am not like that part of my heritage is Italian as well and so I've, I've always been kind of loud and emotional and want to talk about everything all of the time and um, my husband's family is very loud and they make fun of each other all the time and in my family you wouldn't make fun of anyone because someone would end up storming off in a huff and but they just tease each other and have stupid jokes
folks and there's this joy that comes from that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I loved that quote. Um, there's a lecturer that you worked with called John. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, and he says in the book, um, when I fell apart emotionally, I realized that loving acts are all that matter. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that was, I mean, John was a lecturer that I found while I was in uni. And, you know, I think everyone, if you're lucky, you find one teacher in your life who just is is overflowing with inspiration. Like they're just a great teacher. And But I think that like he was he understood European philosophy in an amazing way, but deep underneath it all was just this sort of belief in love as being something that was crucially important. And I thought that was, and it's funny sometimes how you can miss things like that. Like he said that to me and that was, it was sort of embedded in everything that he said, but it was sort of so simple. And I, there was I, this sort of arrogant person who thought I had the answers to things, but really love holding the whole world together is, um, there's there's a lot of truth to that and it's sort of it's embedded in everyday life in the smallest things uh, and the biggest things. Yeah, I I, just, I love that. And I and that to me is the biggest learning I took from your book. That's great. I'm really yeah. glad because that was that was um that's sort of what I I writing the book is difficult and I sort of you know because you get into the weeds and I wrote the book to figure myself out in a lot of ways and that's and that sort of um, reliance on love and realizing that I had to sort of surrender to it in some ways. Um, I, that's something I've just discovered in my life in moments. And I, I knew um, that had to be in the book, that sort of um, the importance of love. Yeah. What has Julie taught you about creativity and love? Oh, so much. I mean, that's that's what I want to write about next in some ways because, yeah, that's that's a big one. And I can explain this and it, it just gets a little bit too intellectual really. I mean, which is not the, what you really want from a question like that. <laughs> That's all right. Go for it. <laughs> we'll just see what happens. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think when I was growing up, especially when I came out of high school and, and went into uni, I was very rational and I started studying things at university that were about science and reason and empiricism and these sort of <laughs> you know, these words that are all about slicing up the world into blocks and turning the world into sort of a a play of objects in a way. And um, and the world isn't just built of objects. It's also built of processes and, and things that are more... Uh, intangible? Or? Intangible and difficult yeah. to quantify. And so me sort of surrendering to love in a broader sense, not just to Julie, was really just learning to sort of love your own sort of um, powerlessness in the face of the world, really, because the world is much, much bigger than you are and you're never really going to be able to control very much of it. Um, and so you have to love the world in some ways. It's much better than – and that's that's what I was like when I was younger is there was a part of me which, which actually hated the world. Um, and I think that's a trap that young people can fall into quite easily. And at some point, if you're lucky – and if you meet somebody who's kind and um, makes you feel like you can trust them, then you learn to just put that aside and 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 surrender to love. Yeah, oh, it's so <laughs> beautiful. It's so funny because it strikes me as so- you're not someone that would say that surrender to love. It's hard as- for me to say. But <laughs> yeah, I just, you look like you're like. A- <laughs> it, I, because it makes you vulnerable, and I and I just I have difficulty because it's 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 not something that I it's not. 
it's not where I'm at in everyday life all the time. So, but it's it's what I've found. It's what I've found works. So, um, I've got to say it. Yeah. yeah, someone who's it's it's awesome to hear because I think there's particularly, and this is a generalization, but I sense there's a lot of young men, particularly who are angry at the world. Absolutely. And I mean, women too, for lots of reasons as well. But men in particular, there's this sort of that beautiful way that you talked about understanding your powerlessness in some ways in the face of the universe and the world and our place in it. I think men, young men in particular seem to be struggling hugely with their place in the world and the notion of who they are and how to deal with all that anger and where to put it. And hearing someone like you who I can tell when I read the book is a very logical, deep-thinking, analytical kind of, yeah, material world in blocks sort of person, yep. academic to ha- to come to that realization after all of that writing and thinking, yeah, congratulations, well done. <laughs> it's bloody hard. Brene Brown, who I think you should go and read now and watch some stuff about her. She does a lot. She studies vulnerability and shame. That's her wheelhouse. Um, she's an academic as well and a lecturer, and just accidentally became famous from doing this talk on vulnerability. And it's really powerful. And she was just like terrified about opening herself up to who and sharing these deep dark sort of secrets about herself and it's turned out to be the best thing she ever did sounds great yeah 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 i mean well that that's that wisdom is as soon as you sort of open yourself up to it you see it embedded within culture within all sort of spiritualities it's 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 there just sort of waiting for people to to find it but it's very um it's difficult stuff to get across and difficult stuff to accept. Um, so, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right about young men having that difficulty. Um, and I was lucky enough to just uh, have a few people around me that helped me, yeah, help me help me open up to it. And I could have quite easily have been lost. And people do get completely lost and they go over the edge of the cliff in, in one way or another. Um, and so... Um, I, if I can hope my book does anything is that it can help um, help people steer themselves away from that a little bit. Yeah, I hope so too. But yeah, I, I definitely recommend um, going to read Post Avoid. Particularly, well, I think everyone gets a lot out of it, but particularly if you have a young man in your life or you are a young man or, you, you know, um, I, I do, I really think that there's a lot of wisdom to be gained. So thank you so much for writing it because it seems to me like it would have been a very hard thing to do thanks a lot yeah it was it was it was was difficult but it was also it was also fun I mean it's it yeah it was something that I needed to do so yeah yeah thank you okay last question before we finish (laughs) how do you write a book like how do you actually physically what do you do in your day what does your day look like to do that it's a great question um I because I'd never done this before and it's different to what I normally do um the first half I found came out very quickly and easily in about three months um, and I would wake up uh, as early as I could, have a light breakfast and write until midday-ish and then after that I just sort of would feel worn out and maybe uh, would edit a bit. In the second half of the book I wrote it almost the inverse. Like I wrote it at night uh, at the end of the day and that was a lot harder because I was trying to resolve all the things that I had sort of brought up in the first half um and so yeah it was it was it was strange it was a bit sort of it was a bit light and dark in a way the the two halves of the book but um you have to focus i had a 
a computer set up in the front room and I just have to sort of nest myself in there a little bit. Um, I saw this great video of Roald Dahl when his his writing habits, he had a shed out in the backyard. He had a little sort of tray table. He'd get sort of set up with, I think he smoked cigarettes and he'd have his cup of tea and just sort of nest in and really focus. You just sort of have to block everything else out and I found that was true for me too. Yeah, get really cozy in there. Yeah. I've seen that. It's almost like a reclining chair, yeah. right? And he can't, you kind of have to surrender to all the neuroses and thoughts and get lost in it. Well, that's it. Like it's You can have some idea of what you're about to write, but sometimes you sit down and you're like, I've, I've got no idea what's coming next. And you really need to just sort of settle in and let the let the words and ideas and images sort of bubble up and then you start listening in a way. You go, oh, I can hear okay, I know what's coming next and it starts to roll out. Yeah. Did you ever feel that sense of flow where mm. you're not really going tap, 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 it's some, coming some, from somewhere else? Oh, absolutely. Like whole whole chapters just rolled out and it's frustrating when you sort of then maybe the next day you go, oh, great, well, that was easy. We'll sit down and do that again and it's just like there's nothing there. Um, and you've sort of just got to forgive yourself when it's like that and um, – and, yeah, just loosen up. You can't sort of force it. Um, yeah. yeah. So you so you have to just turn up. No, that that is the best advice. Is just is to to show up and um, just sit in front of the screen, looking at the words. And but if you're if you go, oh, I'll just I'll go away and do something else. It's sort of that rarely leads to you writing more. Although in the shower as well, when you're like relaxing at the end of the day, that's you know everyone's had that sort of. That's when the idea comes. When you're completely relaxed, um, it helps. Yeah, I think Will Anderson said to me he's like leapt out of the shower and scribbled something <laughs> on a piece of paper and then got back in and kept washing his hair. <laughs> yeah, it's funny like that or driving. I think um, Roald Dahl I read had a book that he kept with him when he went everywhere and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory happened because he was driving and it popped into his head. He pulled over and wrote a boy who lives in a chocolate factory in a little, on a little scrap of paper and that and went came back to that years later and then wrote, you know, this famous book. It's, yeah, you can't underestimate your ideas, right? No, that's right. They're, they're little seeds. Like sometimes they, they just pop into your head and you have a feeling attached to it and that's that's all my – Poster projects came to me in the same way. Of the, it just there was just some little nugget, and then it just sort of explodes out. And um, you just got to pay attention to your to your own thoughts and and write those things down. Yeah, and I, I think because immediately I got fearful because I thought oh, I've just had so many ideas and not ever written them down. <laughs> and that's the other part of it, isn't it? That there's just always another idea. There will be. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you can't you, you can't beat yourself up about the, the stuff that you've. You've lost, and things come back around as well. Sometimes you go, "Oh, you, you know, you remember the thing that you thought you lost." Yeah, yeah, I like that. All right, thank you so much, Thanks Peter for Drew. Me. Oh, I'll put a link to where you can buy your book, Poster Boy, and we can go and follow you on Instagram. Is it at Peter Drew Arts? Yep, yeah, that's it. on Instagram and Twitter as, yep, well. I'm on yep. there as well. Fantastic! Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast called Just Make the Thing with me, Claire Tonti, and this week with Peter Drew. You can find his book, Poster Boy, at all good bookstores, and I so recommend you do. I grabbed it on my Kindle and read it in a day. It was a great read. You can also find more about Peter at Peter Drew Arts. Um, He's also got a website where you can see all of his glorious posters 
And I really recommend going to having a look at those, particularly the image of Monga Khan. It just kind of jumps out at you. You might even see some of his posters around if you're in Australia or America because he ventured over there recently into LA as well to put up some of his street art. Also go and follow Julie White, his partner, um, who is a print artist. Oh, mate, her scarves are delightful. And I've also bought a print of hers for our room because it's really cool, bright and vibrant and fun. So go over there and follow her too. For more shows just like this one, you can scroll back through the feed. I've got interviews with Claire Bowditch, with writer Jamila Risby, with comedian Will Anderson, with Celia Vicola and Luke McGregor from Rosehaven and comedy around the traps in Australia. I've also got wholehearted chats with my wonderful friend Chanel Luchev where we discuss how hard it is to be creative and all the things in between. Okay, um, you can follow the show at Just Make The Thing on Instagram and you can follow me at Claire Tonti on Instagram. You can email the show at justmakethethingpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, suggestions for guests or comments or things that you're making. I would love to hear from you. All right, that's it from me. Thanks as always to Raw Collings for editing this episode. Till next week. Surrender to love, guys what I got from this episode. Surrender to love. Okay. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.